If you've been around the church for a little bit, you're, you're probably aware of what redemptive history is, and we're just kind of marking some of the milestones, major milestones of God's story of redeeming his people. Uh, if you're new to the church and new to the Bible, uh, these are really central texts in the whole story of Christianity, and, uh, and this would be a great place for you to just kind of get an orientation to what is the Bible about, what does it teach, and how do we learn about God and, and about Jesus, right? So uh, before we look at the text in Leviticus 16, I want to just uh, mention that we're talking about the Day of Atonement. Um, and the Day of Atonement is still a holiday that's celebrated around the world in Jewish communities. We call it Yom Kippur, if you've heard of that. Yom means day in Hebrew, and Kippur refers to atonement. It's on October 4th of this year, and it is the High Holy Day of Judaism. Uh, so Similar to uh, a lot of Christian experiences where, you know, people say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but they only go to church on Christmas and Easter. There's a lot of people that say, yeah, I'm Jewish, and they only go to synagogue of, um, that are set apart called Rosh Hashanah, uh, and they celebrate it with a day of fasting and prayer and confession and repentance as a way to, in a modern way, a context, uh, acknowledge what is Leviticus 16 about? about confessing our sins, about our need for the forgiveness of our sins, God's attitude toward our sins, and what he's done to forgive them, right? So let's stand in honor of God's word. I'm not going to read the entire chapter. If you know anything about Leviticus, it can get a little long-winded. <laughs> so we're going to jump in at verse 20, and I'll read through the end of the chapter, but this will give you definitely a sense of what Leviticus 16 is about. <clears throat> so we're talking about Aaron, the high priest, uh, this first section is going to talk about this goat that gets sent off into the wilderness. We refer to it as the scapegoat. That's a concept that we actually kind of have some traction with, but this is where it comes from, right? Starting in verse 20. When he, that is Aaron, uh, has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area and shall let the goat go free in the wilderness." Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and shall take off the linen garments that he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. And he shall bathe his body in water in a holy place and put on his garments and come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make an atonement for himself and for the people. And the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar and he who lets the goat go to Azazel shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. And he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. And it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves or fast 
and shall do no work, either the native or the street to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement, wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. And he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. Lord, we thank you for your word, for how it shares with us clearly who you are, what you require of us, and what you have done for us. And we pray that through uh, this, uh, this teaching about the Day of Atonement, that we would see Jesus more clearly, uh, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the High Priest who sympathizes and sacrifices for us. In his name we pray, amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> so we're gonna, if you've got your outline, you'll see where, where we're heading um, through this uh, survey of Leviticus 16, we're going to talk about the anger of God, we're going to talk about the atonement of God, and uh, the alternatives uh, of, of God, the alternatives we have uh, as God's image bearers, talking about the, we can't really have a conversation about the atonement without talking about the anger of God, the wrath of God, God's holy wrath, and, uh, and I know that makes us nervous. Just need you to buckle up and hang in there for, for a little bit. Let's talk about the holy wrath of God. Compare that with our fallen, finite experience of, of anger, some of the, the hard and, and difficult and painful places that takes us. But then see God's anger in light of the atonement. And then how do we live? We experience anger ourselves, but who live in light of an atoning sacrifice that's been made for us and that we want the world to know about, right? So we need to talk about anger. So far in our uh, survey of redemptive history, we've, we've done a little bit of uh, a few chapters in Exodus when we talked about God's reaction to Israel's slavery under Egypt, right? We, we read at the end of Exodus chapter 2 that God heard their groaning, that God remembered his covenant, that God saw their affliction, their suffering, the abuse they were experiencing, and God knew. He, he knew the injustice they were suffering. He knew the injustice Israel was inflicting. And, uh, and then we see God come to Israel's aid. We saw a little bit of his reaction uh, to Egypt at the Red Sea and what he did to Pharaoh's army, right? But Psalm 78 gives us a window into uh, God's heart toward Israel, of course, but also to Egypt. We see God's anger in Psalm 78 that he let loose on them his burning anger. He let loose on Egypt his burning anger. His wrath, his indignation and distress accompany 
of destroying angels. He made a path for his anger. He allowed it. He gave it permission. He, he, you know, he was intentional. And he did not spare them from death, but gave their lives over to the plague. So Psalm 78 is reflecting back on the plagues of Egypt, right? When God was using Moses to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh kept refusing. And God said, I will wear him down. And God made a path for his anger, his wrath, his indignation. Used to that kind of language. That's the angry God of the old. He's the hallmark God, right? And that's a different God. And then we think that somehow, you know, God's kind of settled down by the time we get to the New Testament. He's cooled his jets, and now we have Jesus, and everything's happy, and there's, you know, rainbows and bluebirds chirping, and, and we all live happily ever after. But can I just tell you that's not true? That God's angry in the Old Testament, and he's angry in the New Testament. So we read this in like Luke's gospel. When John the Baptist comes on the scene, he begins his ministry. He's out there, and this is his, this, this is his sermon. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance? John the Baptist in the New Testament, in the Gospels, is declaring the wrath of God that's yet to come. It's still future. It's not just in the Old Testament. It's not just in the New Testament. It's actually, he's saying it's still to come. Paul echoes very, very similar language throughout his epistles. But, you know, in 1 Thessalonians 1, he talks about Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. God's wrath. And Jesus came to deliver us from that holy anger. And we go, well, okay, that's John the Baptist. We knew he was a little, you know, kind of edgy. Uh, and there's, there's Paul, of course. But, but Jesus didn't talk that way, did he? Yeah, he did. And in this conversation with Nicodemus, uh, that famous dialogue where Jesus is meeting with this rabbi, this you know, teacher of Israel, and, he, and Jesus says things like, I tell you, you must be born again to get a son has eternal life. But whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The wrath of God. It's in the Old Testament. We kind of go, yeah, I knew about that. Don't really, not a fan, but... Sure, I know it's there. And then we go to the New Testament, it's still there. God's still angry in the New Testament. And God's still angry today. He's the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. His anger is holy. But I want to I make clear that even though um, we are uncomfortable with it, his anger isn't like our anger. Uh, there's a reason why we get edgy and anxious when it comes to the topic of God's anger because so many of us have had terrible experiences dealing with the emotion of anger. Maybe you grew up with very angry parents. Or maybe you grew up with very angry siblings. Maybe you've had an angry boss or an angry spouse. Right? You've got angry kids, who knows? But it's just anger, anger is just awful to you. 
So the idea of an angry God just throws you off. But let me, let's, let's make a distinction between God's holy wrath and, and our fallen finite anger, right? We get, we, we get angry about God being angry because we just don't know what to do with it. In, in Romans um, 3, Paul says, what shall we say, that God is unrighteous to inflict his wrath on us? Like we go, is, is God, you know, wrong to be angry? Uh, is it wrong for Psalm 90 to say things like, we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. Uh, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. And then it says, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? We, have, you know, we think that we have a problem with God's anger. It's been around for centuries. People struggle with the idea. Paul says, Shall, you know, is God unrighteous to inflict his wrath on us? He, and Paul says, I speak in, in a worldly human way. And he says, by no means. For then how could God judge the world, right? If, if God isn't righteously angry, how could we trust him as a, as a righteous judge? Um, I know wrath sounds antiquated, but it might be helpful to maintain that language as opposed to anger because of how messed up we get in our conception of anger. Um, I want to recommend, if you don't know this book uh, by J.I. Packer, the late J.I. Packer, it's called Knowing God. He, he wrote it, I think, in like the late 70s or early 80s, and it was a 20th century Christian classic. I don't know what the 21st century Christian classics are going to be, but if you haven't read this, uh, you're missing out. And in, in the table of contents, what J.R. Packer writes about, he's got chapters with these kinds of headings, um, you know, the majesty of God and the love of God and the grace of God. And then you get to chapter 15 and it's an entire chapter on the wrath of God. And they still, people still believe this stuff, the wrath of God. And I'll just write a paragraph or a couple of paragraphs, but an entire chapter on the wrath of God. And in that, in that chapter, J.I. Packer writes that God's wrath in the Bible is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary response to objective moral evil. It is right, it is righteous, and it is necessary for God to react to objective moral evil, is it not? Did you know that there is such a thing as the gospel of God's wrath? It's good news that God is angry. If you're struggling with that, and I, I understand if you are, I totally get it, if that sounds like a ridiculous statement to you. But here's what I want to ask you. What if, what if God never got angry? I mean, we are his image bearers, right? We feel anger. Righteously, we don't always. It comes from God. We bear his image. He uses his anger righteously. We don't always use it righteously, but we, we sometimes you know, skate over into that righteous arena. Like, what would you say to, about, about parents who never reacted, never got angry, never upset, never were even wrathful 
at the abuser, the one who molested their child. You'd wonder what is wrong with those parents? What would you say to the, the, if, if like the Ukrainian people weren't angry about the fact that entire cities have been destroyed and that thousands of their countrymen have been murdered by an aggressor army. No, we're not angry about that. What? what I mean, what would you say to the, the husband or the wife, you know, they're, they're talking to you at work and, oh, you know, and my spouse cheated on me and, and I confronted them and they did it again and I confronted them and they did it again, and, but I'm good with it. It's fine. Forgive and forget. You'd be wondering what, you're unhinged. We need to take you to the hospital. There, there is righteous anger. We, we, we flirt with it. We don't always live there, but we get in on it sometimes, and it's right to do so. And it's wrong not to feel anger in some circumstances. It's good to be angry against culpable, objective, moral evil, right? And when you're indifferent to those things, that's the opposite of love. Anger is not the opposite of love. Indifference is. So our anger comes from God. Paul says in Ephesians 4, be angry and, and do not sin. That's the trick. That's where we struggle. Our anger is fallen, but God's anger is perfect. Packer, you know, additionally says, would a God who did not react adversely to evil in this world be morally perfect? Right? Could, if God hears, you know, like in Israel, God heard their groaning, he saw their affliction, God knew, he remembered. Like if God hears your groaning, if God sees your affliction, if he remembers his covenant with you, if he knows what's going on in your life and the evil that you have suffered, the ways that people have sinned against you and was indifferent to it, could, what would you, would you trust him? Could, could you love a God who is indifferent to what you've suffered at the hands of other people? Who didn't get his hackles up about that? It's good news that God gets angry. It means he cares. It means he's invested. It means he's not indifferent. He's not on vacation. He's not, you know, could care less. He cares a lot. And so we need God's anger, just like we need God's love. We need both. His anger and his love go together. So here's how it works. A God who is only angry all the time, all anger all the time, you know, that's a nightmare. But a God who's only love, only rainbows and bluebirds, he's not worthy of your time or your... There's something wrong with a person who never gets angry about people hurting other people. There's something wrong with a person who never gets angry or upset about or doesn't care if those he loves defy him or reject him or you know, neglect him. And our... Sin, not just the sins against us make God angry, but our sins make God angry. And that's our rub. That's where we get into trouble. This is why we have to recognize we're not just victims of sin and evil, but we're also perpetrators of it. And this is where the atonement of God comes in. In light of his anger, God works constructively to deal with our sin. 
He makes an atonement for them. That's what Leviticus 16 is going at lengths to lay out God's preparations and the ceremonial you know, stuff that made sure Israel knew that his anger was satisfied. It's done. So in 1 John 4, we read that in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Um, the new NIV has a different uh, way of expressing 1 John 4.10. He says, this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So atoning sacrifice and propitiation are synonymous. Um, so, you know, when you talk about atonement, that really talks about God covering our offense and it removes the reason for his angry response. It removes the offense. Uh, the propitiation, you know, uh, if you want to know more about that, go to our website. Uh, Phil Smulin was teaching the adult discipleship class uh, this week and last week, and he talked about propitiation. It's a good lecture there. And that's the means by which God no longer regards us as his enemies. We're not his enemies anymore. We actually, through the gospel, through the atonement, become his friends. He loves us and in his anger, not enemies anymore. Um, the Dictionary of Biblical Imagery says that the English word atonement is derived from the two words at one minute. Literally makes up this word atonement. At one minute, and it denotes a state of togetherness and agreement between two people. They were estranged and now they're agreed. Atonement presupposes two parties that are estranged with the act of atonement being the reconciliation of them into a state of harmony. So that's what the gospel does. It's about reconciliation. We and God are we're enemies. We were at enmity with one another and the gospel reconciles us. So the high priest Aaron, he, he washes his body and he wears only white linen, a white linen coat, a tunic, a, a sash, and a turban, different from the ordinary high priestly clothing, which was itself different from the regular, you know, Israeli clothing. And then Aaron makes a sacrifice for himself, his own sins and the sins of his family, that's a bull. And he makes a sacrifice for the sins of the people, that's a goat. And there's a second goat, that one is not sacrificed, that's the live goat, and that's the scapegoat. And Aaron places both of his hands on the head of the live goat, the scapegoat, and that symbolically is this act of the sins of the people being transferred onto that substitute. And the substitute is sent out into the wilderness, into Azazel. And, then we're ne and, the, and the animal is never seen again. It's the, our sins being removed from us as far as the east is from the west. All this ritual symbolism. Um, there's a slide I want to show you of the tabernacle, just to kind of give you an orientation to what's happening here and the progression of the high priest on this day of atonement, one day a year, when he can move from the courtyard where you've got the altar you know, for the, all the animal sacrifices, and he goes past the pool where the water for washing is, and he goes into the tabernacle proper, into, past the holy place, and then stands at the altar of incense. And before he can go into the most holy place, he has to burn incense, and he can only go into makes the blood of the goat, and he sprinkles the, the singularity of God's presence on this planet, and it's covered in blood. 
It's covered in a sacrifice that God makes to take away the sins of the people, to remove their offense as far as the east is from us, to remove the, the cause of anger. And then Aaron goes out of the Holy of Holies. He goes out of the holy place. He goes out into the courtyard, does the same on the altar, a burnt offering, purifies, puts blood on that altar. And then he changes his clothes again. He, he washes again. He changes back into his ordinary priestly garments. And then the whole community breathes a sigh of relief. It's done. It's finished. The sacrifice is over. In verse 16, uh, chapter 16, verse 30, it says, For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. And so the people are reminded through this very elaborate ceremony, you're clean, you're forgiven, and you are right with God. So along comes Jesus, right? And we know how the Old Testament sets the stage for Jesus and the priests and the sacrifices are all pointing to Jesus as the true priest and the true sacrifice. And Hebrews 9 gives us a, a fairly you know, extensive commentary on how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Day of Atonement. So let me read a few verses here. Just listen for the comparisons, listen for the parallels and the contrasts between what Jesus does and what Aaron the high priest had to do. It says, Christ entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it places every year with blood, not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But, but as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sins by the sacrifice of himself. Not with the blood of a bull or blood of a goat, but with his own blood, he makes the atonement. And just as it is appointed for a man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him, looking to him as their atoning sacrifice. So Jesus is simultaneously this high priest and the atoning sacrifice. Now, let me um, ask you to listen carefully because we get confused about what is, what's, how does the sacrifice work? We tend to think that the atonement is something that we do to make God like us again. We think we need to make the sacrifice because God's angry, you know, you know, like when you mess up with your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your spouse and you're like, okay, I gotta go get some roses or I gotta go write a nice note or whatever and, you know, because they're mad and I can't get them to answer the, or pick up the phone or whatever. Like we have that idea about how we treat God, but that's not what the atonement is. We're the ones who won't pick up. He's the one pursuing us. The atonement is his sacrifice that he made to win us. The gospel says that he made the atonement because he loves us. Not in order, we don't make the atonement to get him to love us or to get him like us. He makes it because he loves us, because he likes us. 
Yes, he's angry, but yes, he's loving. He's both. And you can't have one without the other. Romans 5.8 says that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So what do we do? We don't make the sacrifice God does. Then what do we do? We respond. We repent. We believe. We receive the sacrifice. We accept it on our behalf as a gift that God makes for us. That's what repentance is. We receive Jesus as God's atoning sacrifice to take our sins away. Do you want to know what hell is? Lots of misconceptions about what hell is. Hell is rejecting God's atoning sacrifice. God makes the sacrifice. He offers Jesus. He offers Jesus for us. He offers Jesus to us. And we say no. We say worse than no, if you know what I mean. Hell is rejecting God's atoning sacrifice and then remaining under God's anger forever. But we don't have to because Jesus removes our offenses, removes the cause of anger. In Psalm 90, uh, we looked at this before, you know, in relation to Egypt and the plagues and God's anger. It said, for we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath. We are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Here's what Jesus did. Read Psalm 90 through the lens of the gospel, and here's what it sounds like. For Jesus was brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, he was dismayed. And you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Jesus was our sacrifice. He died in our place. And God's anger was poured out on him to make us clean. That's what the sacrifice accomplished. Not happy with a God who's angry and they reject this whole uh, idea of an atoning sacrifice. They will say, you know, God had alternatives like uh, the, the cross. What was going on? You know, sure, Jesus was on the cross, but it wasn't as an atoning sacrifice. Jesus was just there to be an example to us of what truly sacrificial living and dying, you know, looks like. Or they will say that Jesus was there to show us this is, you know, sin's awful, it's, it's terrible, and so the cross is there to show us a deterrent from our sin. Or it's a display of God's love. God loved the world so much that he gave his only son. But it fails, those, those ideas have kernels of truth in them, but they fail to reckon with the fact that Jesus was our substitutionary sin bearer, an atoning sacrifice to cover our guilt, a propitiation to take away God's anger for our sins. J. Gresham Machen was a pastor and theologian at the early 20th century. He wrote a book called Christianity and Liberalism, dealt with this whole idea of different ways that people are responding to what happened on the cross. And many are saying, you know, God's not angry, God's love. And Machen said that it is true that the death of Christ is an example of self-sacrifice, which may inspire self-sacrifice in others. And it is true that the death of Christ shows us how much God hates sin. And it is true that the death of Christ displays the love of God. All of these truths are that Christ died, in, but they are swallowed up in a far greater truth that Christ died instead of us to present us faultless before the throne of God. 
the grace of God always comes to us with blood on it. It's costly. It's a life for our life. And God was happy to lay down his life for us. So what do we do in response? Let me wrap up. Um, Jesus provides a real atonement, a real at-one-ment between us and God. And then he calls us to go and live out that reality in our relationship with God and with one another. To, to show the world the reality of the atonement. Anger, it's full of adrenaline and energy. And by itself, um, we struggle with anger because by itself, it often leads to destructive behaviors, right? Because there's nothing to, to direct or you know, shape it. It's just out of control, spinning around like the Tasmanian devil from Looney Tunes, you know, just making a mess. We don't trust it. We're afraid of it. But when anger is joined to love, it, it actually leads to constructive things. Love directs the energy of anger in redemptive directions, uh, and it has good purposes. And, you know, so when we get angry, as, and, and we, are, we have a choice, um, you know, so when, when we're angry, we can choose to lose our cool, we can choose to scream, we can choose to fight without regard for how others are going to suffer for our reactions, how others are going to, to have to sacrifice, you know, because of our words and our retribution. There's going to be blood, you know, so to speak. We can do a lot of damage with our anger, but we can also join love to our anger and make constructive, redemptive choices. You can channel the adrenaline of your anger into something proactive and stop the cycle of forcing other people to make sacrifices for our sins, for our angry sins. We can stop the cycle of bloodletting, of making people hurt and wounding them with our words and our actions when they sin against us. It's just a perpetual cycle. And what Jesus came to do was to end that cycle of pain, to end that cycle of sinning against one another. You sin against me, I'm going to sin against you, and then I'm going to sin back and sin and sin and sin. Jesus put an end to that by his sacrifice once for all to teach us how to when we join love with our anger, we can forgive his blood. What more payment is required? God is the judge and he will deal with the perpetrator, with whoever's sinning against us, with the person who's committing evil. He will judge evil. It's either going to be at the cross or it's going to be at the end day. And we can rest in that. And that means that we can stop the cycle of sacrifice. And God's anger and love led him to make things better. His wrath didn't require us to suffer. His wrath didn't require us to make sacrifices in order to appease him, to placate him. Instead, he suffered. And he made the sacrifice in order to make peace between us. He didn't require sacrifices from us. He sacrificed for us. That's how we need to move into conflict and sinful episodes and bad situations, making sacrifices, not making others sacrifice. The sacrifice is over. Jesus finished it. It's done. His goal wasn't to expose us and to condemn us for our sins. His, his purpose was to cover our guilt and shame and to forgive us forever. And we are his image bearers and we get to go and show the world that reality. 
Hebrews 9 says he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Are we going to hold other people's sins against them? God doesn't hold your sin against you. Are we going to forgive as we've been forgiven? God sent Jesus to die for our sins, and that's enough. His anger and love compelled him to cover us, compels us to do the same for others. So we're going to respond the same in the face of sin. We're going to continue to love as we've been loved and forgive as we've been forgiven. And it all started with a high priest going into the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur. Who knew that that would affect the next fight you're going to have with your spouse or your kids? Who knew that's going to affect the way that you react to some evil in the world, some injustice that you face? Ephesians 2 says that he is our, in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Let me pray for us. Lord, we, uh, we pause uh, in the reality of, of your anger. We don't want to take it lightly. And at the same time, we rest and, and are greatly comforted to know that your anger never exists alone, but is always joined to your love. And that means your anger is holy, it's constructive, it's constrained, it's purposeful, and it redeems us. And it means that you made a sacrifice for us instead of asking us to make the sacrifice that you suffered for us instead of expecting us to suffer for our sins. So we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. Lord, would you help us as recipients of your mercy to show and extend mercy to others? Would you help us as recipients of your forgiveness to forgive others, to be peacemakers because the sacrifice has been completed once for all. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.